Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Frank Lesseter, editor of No-Till Farmer. Sourced by Sound Agriculture sponsors this podcast about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. Guy Swanson of Spokane, Washington is a longtime veteran of the no-till movement, having grown up on a family farm where his father, Mort, in the late 1960s, built a heavy-duty yielder drill for no-tilling the steep slopes of the Palouse area of southeastern Washington. Guy today is the head of the Exactrix company, which manufactures and markets extremely precision fertilizer application systems. Seeing the sky-high fertilizer prices being paid in the last several years by growers, he's developing what is called the green ammonia processing process that could lead to huge reductions in nitrogen prices. Listen in as Guy talks about the future of green ammonia on North American farms. Guy Swanson's who we're talking to today, and you've been in a pioneer family for no-till for many years. Your dad, Mort, was no-tilling for years. I think I read you've been no-tilling the family farm since 1973, and your dad mm-hmm. came up with the pioneer drill that became the yielder drill, and then you got involved in fertilizer and had exactrics, and uh, now mm-hmm. you're talking about green ammonia. So we're going to talk about green ammonia today and what it means to no-tillers, and I guess we better start off and have you explain what green ammonia is. Okay. Well, thanks, Frank, for the great introduction. world is changing. It's changing really fast now. And due to the wars that we're fighting and also just oligarchy is forcing a change. So I want to talk a little bit about green ammonia. Let's let's go there first. And, um, you know, all ammonia today built around the world is done with a process called steam methane reformation or SMR. And there is a a lot of uh, gases that are lost into the atmosphere with this technique. And it was U.S. developed. uh, In fact, the United States military, as I understand, was actually involved in it very early on. But the actual advent of steam methane reformation uh, came from the petroleum industry. And uh, a Houston company by the name of Kellogg, Brown & Root invented the process of a single train compressor Uh and this allowed them to produce uh, copious amounts of ammonia nitrogen about 1962 up until that time frank the ammonia in the united states was built with dams it was built at the wilson dam and in the tva i remember touring that and looking at the old equipment now, from the era of World War One, so we actually have been building ammonia for nitrate to fire the guns of World War One. But uh, following World War One, the TVA had a mandate uh, to become a fertilizer development center, and it later became the National Fertilizer Development Center. And that's where your anhydrous ammonia development work all came from. So it was green ammonia. And done with hydropower, Um, you've probably been out west here. You know where Trail BC is, just north of Spokane on the Columbia. And uh, when I was a boy, I applied uh, green ammonia with uh, Caterpillar. Did uh, a lot of recropping with green ammonia. Recropping is when you raise wheat on wheat. So uh, green ammonia is uh, strictly done with solar and wind today. Uh, Dams aren't nearly a choice, uh, but it's all about energy. How do you get the most economical form of energy and the cleanest energy? And the chase is on to find that. And what happened uh, in my particular case, I got so fed up with Koch brothers in Kansas taking all the money away from my great producers and shipping it to Brazil to build another ammonia plant. Why don't we just get control of this situation? Now, it's not a vendetta. It's just a simple case of it's a runaway, and we need to build the ammonia much more economical. And so we're going to turn the clock back. Like Michael J. Fox, we're back to the future. We're going to build it with electrolysis. So it's a very straightforward process and very common to certain people. I mean, it's very common. 
That's kind of a brief rendition of uh, green ammonia. Solar and wind is the optimum choice, but you can also use uh, hydro, which has been done. Um, and of course, you can use some more expensive processes like pumped hydro, where you actually build a reservoir and run water up and down the hill. Or you can go to geothermal. You can punch a hole into the ground and uh, try to get some of that good uh, energy from the planet. In general, there's a few other approaches. Most of the ammonia we're using today in the U.S., is it produced in the U.S. or, or imported? About 2 million metric tons comes from outside the United States. And it, it's related to the Mississippi River and the New Orleans port. It comes from the Caribbean or it can come from Europe, wherever they can get the best buy. It's got to move up the river. Um, and so our Mississippi River is very key. The Magellan yeah. Pipeline is now closed. And uh, that's the one that ran uh, from Texas, Oklahoma, border Texas, all the way up into the northern uh, states. That particular pipeline has been a mystery to me uh, why they would do that. And now I think I know. And it's, it's, I think the handwriting is on the wall for uh, the old mega plants. They're, go they're going to be uh, fading away. I don't think we'll ever build another one, would be my guess. There's 35 of these plants, by the way. And uh, most of them are located on coastal plains and related to river transport to reach into those more inland markets. And, of course, Iowa has a very recent one, but it was not U.S. built. It was built by Aramco. So uh, you have um, some movement thinking that maybe we need to get in control, a little more control of our national security by building our own ammonia plants and getting away from the mega approach and not worry about the rivers. Let them be. I think we have now figured it out. It's very simple. You just build it right in your town. You just go local, and, and the county commissioners seem to like us thus far. We've had really good acceptance. If we build these plants across the states, how big would they be? How much ammonia would they turn out, and what would they cost to build? There's a loaded question for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I got it all down. Now, oh, geez, man. Oh, God, we got the A-team working, and there's numbers flying around and spreadsheets. And so uh, to answer your question kind of piece by piece, the plants are not oversized. They have very little impact. Uh, they consume uh, about two and a half gallons a minute of water, so it's a residential rate, which so there's no impact of any significance on the aquifer. Uh, we even are considering using rainwater because it's soft. The plants uh, have a footprint of about 40 to 80 acres. It kind of depends on the area we're in. The production is uh, is not like a magnanimous mega plant. It's about 10 ton a day. And um, we store uh, ammonia right at the plant in uh, pressure vessels. They're large 60,000-gallon uh, and 30,000-gallon pressure vessels. And uh, we have discovered that uh, the ammonia tanks double and triple their value from their original price. In fact, this morning I was just working with a producer in Nebraska, and he paid uh, three times more for an ammonia 30,000-gallon tank than what it was cost to be built in 1997. Wow. So, the, the, uh, yeah, it's steel. But, you know, the other thing that happens with ammonia the two of them are meant for each other. They just fit so well. And so there's very little internal corrosion at all inside of a tank. Most of it is to keep the paint uh, on the tank so we don't get external corrosion. It's very important to protect the value. And, of course, the people that really have the say-so are the insurance companies. Yeah. And so Hartford Steamship and Boiler insures all these tanks, and then we have our state boiler inspectors, state fire marshals. They make all the follow-up in the field. Uh, they catch the mistakes. If anything is wrong, they catch it early. You know, people think, oh, there's just too much regulation. Well, that's what makes it work is the regulation. And so you get a hazmat driver, and he's in a big truck, and you've seen him going down the road, and he has an impeccable safety record if he's driving in an ammonia truck. 
Yeah. So let's see. And, and the general gist of it, it has a couple wind towers, maybe three. It has about 20 acres of solar panels. And then we have a little bit of an extra bonus with the plants. Kind of depends how we uh, set up the uh, stool, or we call it the three-legged stool. And so um, renewables have a little issue from time to time. They go burp, and they, they'll shut down for 20% of the time, both solar and wind. They never overlap perfectly. And so you have to run spreadsheets and try to figure it out. And so we, we, we make up the difference uh, with a, what they call a PPA, a power purchase agreement, a swap agreement where we exchange power back and forth to the grid, or in some cases, we go gridless. Uh, if the grid is not supplying green electricity, well, we don't get the bonus uh, at the end of the run. And sure. so the new IRA, you probably have heard about all the things going on, we get a $3 per kilogram uh, credit that goes back in our hip pocket, and we get about 1,600 tons a day, or 1,600 kilograms a day. And so there's a little $4,800 bonus at the end of the day for building it green. Mm-hmm. And yet we're, it doesn't, it's not required. We just use that for to build the next plant. That's our approach is they don't get that into the operating budget because they might take that away. So our goal is to build it as cheap and economically as we can. And so Washington State University, uh, Kansas State University is all involved in our feasibility studies. Some of the top uh, men in, a, in, in the world in anhydrous ammonia and ammonia manufacturer, they come from Germany. Uh, these people are fantastic supports. Kansas has a special interest because there's so many acres that are fertilized. Every acre gets fertilized when you get out in the western part of the state because soybeans don't work uh, very well anyway. And so we've got milo. There's 8 million acres of milo, you know, and, and we got the dryland corn, a big technical movement there. There's no more summer fallow. That's all gone. It's all done uh, with winter wheat, nice rotation, strong returns. Garden City, Kansas, I've got a fantastic guy with 14,000 acres, and he has just made fabulous inroads. Top yields, 120 bushel average in one year on winter wheat. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Dry land, too, about 14-inch rainfall. So it's those old bands and no-till that makes it work. And um, so these are some of the fellows that are involved in green plant ammonia. There are a lot of Exactrix owners, almost 100% Exactrix owners that have uh, signed contracts with us for seven years to deliver ammonia at somewhere between $100 and $300 a ton. We let it float a little bit in there just to cover our bets. And um, right now I think we're targeted at $247 a ton for year 2025. That's our kickoff year. The solution is in the wind. I mean, it just, the power costs have come down so much. And here's, here's a zinger for you, a factoid. I called the guy that built the first, one of the first big 6,000-acre wind farms at Tulia, Texas. And we were talking, and he was a land-use manager, a well-educated, top-notch guy. And he says, in Tallulah, I, I left my previous out, occupation as an as a urban planner, land use guy, and I went into the rollout of wind. And he says, we sold those first contracts for two cents a KW. And today, you get the same contract, two cents a KW. Wow. What that mean? Yeah, right. Level all the way through for 20 years, a level playing field. And it's, it's a phenomenal story. We could have been building ammonia for, you know, we could have made money at $200 a ton all through that 20-year period. And you go take a look at what happened, and the oligarchy wiped it out. Let's put it this way. Oligarchy set the stage for a guy working in his basement. Somebody had figured it out. Right. And, it, you know, it's good old America. These things come true if you stay focused. And uh, so we're very close um, 
to having a, a fabulous announcement coming up in in February about what direction we'll be going next. And, of course, uh, we're very intense uh, with the USDA right now. And uh, we also have an uh, investment group. And we also have even uh, taken a look at some major oil companies that might want to look at us. But right now, I think that would be uh, a little premature to suggest that anybody with oil in the ground <laughs> may not be too interested in long-term performance because we really do change the world. And... Uh, this is part of the story is financing. So I'm going to answer your question about how much money does it take? Great. Okay. And that, that's what everybody wants to know. How much money does it cost to build one of these plants? In our initial approach, we've, uh, we've done so many different spreadsheet layouts, but right now we think we can build the first four or five for about 44 million a piece. And, and we really need to build uh, 10 because they all tie together. They're interlinked like a golf course. And so from Watford City up in the, in the McKenzie County, the oil field, the Bakken deposit, we have a plant about every 150 miles in some of the best wind corridors in the United States. What state are you talking about? North Dakota. Gotcha. Okay. North, North Dakota to uh, Pampa, Texas. Okay. And between Pampa and Watford City in North Dakota, we are looking at 10 total plants that that all work together like a link on a golf course. So some days it's the wind's not blowing in North Dakota or the wind got cloudy, you know, just environmental conditions. So these plants are eveners. They help us bring us into an average, and then we can lose a plant do the repairs and not really throw the mechanism off. Mm-hmm. And so it's a real opportunity. I kind of knew about this concept. I was talking with a good friend from Coke, and he mentioned that to me. And, yeah, that's kind of cool, but I don't know. And, yeah, we might take a look at that. So that was, you know, geez, 15 years ago. But in 2013 is when we had the breakthrough where we got connected with Europe and we were able to find a small-scale Haber-Bosch processor. It's not unusual for this to happen, by the way. The diesel engine got its start, as we all know, in Germany, and it was Mercedes that set up Caterpillar. Mm-hmm. So the fuel system was the key, and before long, in 10-year stretch, uh, Caterpillar became the largest diesel engine manufacturer in the world by 1938. So Europe leads they always seem to have got things figured out a little differently and it's because they have no fossil fuel industry in europe and this is where the opportunity began to show up because we're so dominated by fossil fuel thinking here and and that's okay that's how we evolved you know the steam locomotive uh, had to turn into a museum piece eventually and the diesel engine will turn into a museum piece it is just uh, changing, and that's all we have to do. We simply have to accept those vital words. It's all that we're really looking at here is change. It will change, and it will be difficult for certain states that have big petroleum interests. They will fight tooth and nail. They'll tell the story their way, and that's okay. Well, you, you expect that, and, but I know we have, we have the grip on it. And we'll share the business for a while, but by 20 years from now, it'll be done with wind and solar. Let's take this plant that you're thinking of building in North Dakota at $44 million. Are these 10 plants going to be owned by an investment firm with outside capital, or are you going to ask local people to contribute or what? Our first rule is a triple play. Okay. Anybody that wants to invest needs to be a producer. And to get the risk down and to get into the game of low-cost ammonia. Now, it's not a co-op. It's done as a business. And the triple play comes in the environmental side. You just flat don't use as much, and you get a great crop and low risk, and you have a chance to make a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. so the the net dollar returns, we know an irrigated production in Kansas – or Nebraska, it's somewhere between 100 and $150 more net income per acre. 
Okay. That's all pretty well tested now and time proven out. And um, so the uh, the heightened part of my enthusiastic discussion here is that it's like 1962. We're starting over. We're going to wipe out the fossil fuel part of ammonia. Now, there'll be, you know, it'll be around for a while. Yeah. But we can drive land values. And you you just all of a sudden you realize, well, geez, the land banks will loan you money on this. They get a great play out of These guys can pay off their debt. They're not hoping for federal crop insurance to pay the fertilizer bill. Hmm. The risk goes way, way down. And, you know, I've had some real experience on the Great Plains. It's one of my favorite places to operate. And you can't believe the number of acres that are not properly fertilized because the nutrient costs are too high. Right. It's a mess. And this is what brings on the, these goofy thought processes. Well, we don't need fertilizer. We'll do regenerative farming and all that. Hey, wait a minute. If the price drops, all that will go away. So it's just the, the fertilizer is overpriced. And we know who's causing it. And um, it's not anything to do with natural gas. It's just oligarchy. And uh, greedy, greedy people involved. I might also emphasize that there's some great technical papers that are available. If if the your listeners or the or the people involved in the iPod here would like to source those papers, we'll be glad to supply it. And um, a lot of them are actually stored in a warehouse, at, you know, in somebody's computer at AEA, Ammonia Energy Association, and you can go look at what 20 countries are doing. They have over 200 members. Africa is coming alive. There's um, in gigawatts, I might add, solar and wind to build ammonia. And, um, you know, everybody jumps back when they see these announcements. Oh, this can't be true. It is. It's going on. And we have a really great connection in Holland that allows us to uh, oversee what's going on around the world in uh, green Ammonia, not blue ammonia, but green ammonia. Noltor invests in one of these plants and and takes some is going to take some green ammonia on his crops. He's been paying, you know, a year ago he may have been paying fourteen hundred bucks a ton for it, and you're saying that maybe he can get it for two hundred and fifty bucks a ton. Is he going to pocket all that extra money, or is he going to put more ammonia on and go for higher yields? Well, this is a lot of uh, the thought process. Everybody knows when it gets really cheap that they get carried away with over-application. We know right. this. Yeah. And it's most of that over-application has been done because of poor equipment, Frank. Okay. They were not metering correctly. They just set the controller as high as it would go, and they'd, they'd waste the <laughs> amount. And now they we won't be doing that anymore. You know, it's it's pretty well, it's serious business because uh, these guys will have to invest in equipment also. That's some of the criteria. They have to have a delivery truck. they got to have a storage tank. Um, they need to have uh, some help on the toolbar. We build them. So does John Deere. But it will be Xactrix metering systems that go on these machines to assure that we know till. We're not going to be letting it be a runaway with shank application. Um, you may even see strip till start to take the heat as we begin to understand that it's no till with those 15-inch bands that really makes the difference. And you get these top yields if you just pay attention to where the nutrients are at. What throws a lot of people off is they don't realize that phosphate is going down, and so is potassium, and so is sulfur. And and so when you make um, the, this nutrient package, and it's all absolutely uniform, it'll stay in place for many years. And those bands are available for future crops. You probably heard me talk about it. It's rotational sure. band loading that makes it work. It's got to be no-till. And, and that's why uh, strip-till is kind of okay. I know you have a lot of subscribers in strip till but uh, in general most strip tillers become no tillers eventually we'll come back to talking with guy swanson in a moment but first i'd like to thank our sponsor source by sound agriculture supporting today's podcast 
Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus in your field so you can rely less on expensive fertilizer. This foliar application has a low use rate and you can mix it right into your tank. Check out Source. It's like caffeine for microbes. Learn more at www.sound.ag. Before we get back to today's discussion, here's a little known no-till fact. John Baker is a longtime no-till researcher at the University of Massey in New Zealand. He's published more than 80 international papers on the science of no-till machinery and its interaction with the soil. He developed this cross-slot technology that's now used in many areas of the world. John is convinced the science and practice of no-till has passed the point of no return. He believes no-till is within sight of becoming the most common system on the planet for seeding row crops. And now back to my conversation with Guy Swanson on the future of green ammonia. So one of the things you're going to have with all these plants is you're going to cut your shipping and transportation costs by quite a bit, right? That's right. And yet, you know, you, you think it through and you say, hmm, what does it cost to move ammonia? And it's really pretty minuscule and it's very safe. The plants are about 150 miles apart, so initially. Now, we plan to build 2,000, so it may just be a matter of 15 miles and you can go get it. So uh, that's our long-term goal, which will take about 20 years to do this. But for now, we'll be about 150 miles apart. These plants will lean on each other. They'll share production. There's trucks running between the plants. It costs us about 40 eight dollars a ton to run a 10,200 gallon DOT transport. So you can run $48 a ton and run 150 miles. So that means that we're conjoined, uh, we're uh, connected, or spider web, we're linked like a golf course. So when you, you sign up for Greenplay, you understand that you've solved some of the problem because you have storage on your own farm which the government will pay for or help you pay for with low interest uh, loans. And, um, and the machinery part of the mystery can now be shaved away. We can, we can get this high quality machinery that lasts for a long time and it will fit into our economic scenario. Not for all farmers either. I, I gotta tell you, there, there's just some guys that wanna be shortcutters and you have to let them shortcut and but they won't they'll have a real price penalty uh if they elect to go different directions because the big guys will adapt quickly uh it may be a little difficult for the small guys they have to may have to form machinery rings or try to figure out the machinery side but we're we're just basically a a a simple local place to buy ammonia We, we don't have a triple tier marketing program or we don't share with the other fertilizer manufacturers because we're green we maintain a fungible certificate on the product so that that certificate goes with the ammonia if you want to sell it back to us you have to present us the certificate and then we watch the tanks electronically to see if something funny is happening and um, and so we can confirm that it is in fact green play ammonia. We also have another way to um, technically study it and um, we have a little nanoparticle program that goes with the green ammonia so we IP it. We know exactly that yeah that was built at this plant or that plant so we have a little chemical tag that goes with it. Yeah, this is part of the problem because the uh, fossil fuel people want to mix and blend gray with blue and they think, oh, we'll put a little green in with that. This will be uh, our carbon, you know, set off, offset. And then, but they, quite frankly, you cannot miss the opportunity to get $3 a kilogram for H2 that's green, green H2. So I've known you and your dad for five decades, I think, since we started No-Till Farmer in 1972. And I, I don't think I've ever met anybody that gets excited about a new idea as you do and is optimistic. But when you get uh, some of these no-tillers out there, I mean, we got some farmers that can be conservative. I'm sure they'd all like $250 per ton ammonia, but 
Some of these people will say, well, yeah, but I don't want to put any money into this plant. But then you got mm-hmm. other guys that get so excited, they're going to write you a check before they know the amount. <laughs> well, it's probably a matter of education, you know. Yeah. And there's there's followers and there's leaders. And, you know, it's kind of like the no-till era, you know, in the 80s. It, yeah. it, we had a lot of neat guys that just sold off all their machinery and went no-till. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And and they just had fabulous results uh, by moving into no-till. Yeah, it's not for everybody. It's uh, I one time I I told a guy, well, it's really for what we're doing here is really for the top five percent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going a little too far because mm-hmm. you know you tend to get uh, you, you you get a little too small a market share. In this particular case, we're going to do it with price. We'll do it with the lowest cost price, but we want you to do it our way. We want sure. you to do it the way it was originally laid out, and we don't want any messing around over in the tillage area. You, you need to save, you know, so many people like to top dress or throw solution 32 through the pivot. There's so much nitrous oxide that gets up in the atmosphere. It's 300 times more powerful than CO2. And this is where the real problem lies is the the greenhouse gases, uh, the methanes, the nitrous oxide, and the CO2. We just have a really, this is a great period where we can finally straighten out our outlooks on how to farm. And we'll lead the planet. You know, the Chinese will never compete with us. Absolutely not. They're probably the most wasteful with a commercial fertilizer of any country in the world because they don't have the massive acres of the Great Plains and sure. the, on up into Canada. It's just a, a fabulous uh, breadbasket to the world. And uh, we just need to pay more attention and, and keep the dirt in place and get the water to go in the ground where it falls and get the fertilizer to stay in place. And, you know, a few little cover crops in there and uh, lengthen rotation and, adding fumigant grade cropping into it. There's there's really some solutions here, and we can take care of the seed corn people in the process. We can keep that still going. But Montgomery, it's, it's a real change in the outlook of how to fertilize crops and how to uh, protect the environment and get that triple play. And if you can get a triple play out of an investment, then you really have done something. Right. So do we have... Um green ammonia facilities working in other areas of the world now? Uh, yes. Um, they, there's about 180,000 tons of green ammonia. Now, at one time, 30% of all the ammonia produced was done with dams. And right. that was up until, you know, the early 70s when they closed the, uh, that part of the business down. So, yeah, there are green small-scale plants in uh, Morocco, in Switzerland. Casala is the real leader in this project because uh, they were the original builders of process equipment for ammonia in, uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, they have a big history in electrolysis. But they run the full gamut. You know, they compete uh, against Thiessen Krupp and Kellogg, Brown, and Root uh, for the big plants, and yet they do the small stuff too. And uh, so a company in, uh, of engineers in uh, Holland specialized in ammonia for many years, and then they discovered, hey, we can build this. If the energy costs come down, we can build these small-scale plants. And, of course, we've been in touch with them since um, 2013 on how to build ammonia economically. Once again, it's the story of the diesel engine. It, it came from Europe. That's exactly where it came from. What's the, the goal of getting your first plant up, up and operating and turning out green ammonia for farmers to use? What year? By the way, uh, there uh, I wanted to add, there are some green ammonia plants that are coming. Okay. Besides us, and and um, we're all friends. I mean, it's a it's a growing uh, market. There's no like anybody's going to take anything away from the other guy. Yeah, it's a phenomenal growth market, and um, 
So Minnesota, University of Minnesota, has a small laboratory where they have, I think, a one megawatt uh, capability, uh, maybe one ton a day. Uh, it's a test facility. Right. And I think the legislature in, in Minnesota authorized this development. I've not been in that lab. That came out of Proton Ventures, I believe. And then uh, CF at Donaldsonville has uh, talked about a 20,000 tons per year. Yeah. A small, a small plant at Donaldsonville. And I think they're just kind of playing with it uh, at this point. But um, the, the, uh, the problems for the mega plants is that they're all lumped together on, that, uh, on the Mississippi River. And yet the demand is not there. You have to transport it. And so when you get high transportation added to it, like where we plan to be, we'll never export it. it, it we're landlocked. Uh, it's just too far away from the ocean and too far away from the rivers. Right. And um, so uh, that's kind of a good thing for the producer because we don't run around trying to export our product when we can take care of everybody at home. I think um, in general, you'll see um, a trend. You know, there'll be some greenwashing going on, a lot of talk about blue ammonia. And really, let them do it. I mean, it's fine because it's green ammonia that will win in the end. Locally built green ammonia. Right in your town, um, there'll be an ammonia plant mm-hmm. and uh, be very small. And it won't be trailers going up and down the road from the ammonia plant. It'll all be in uh, DOT trucks, and the deliveries go right to the farm. And then you can have your little trailer at your farm if you want to use an applicator trailer design. Or if you want to have your own delivery truck to go to the field, you've probably seen some pictures of that. That's more of a Western approach where you actually deliver right to your applicator. Then that's probably the ultimate and safest way to do it. What's uh, USDA think of this? Well, I, I, gosh, I don't get to talk to them. You know, that's the funny part. But I, I, I know that we will have a, a meeting here shortly. And um, I doubt if there'll be many others in the bidding process that will have as a complete a plan as what we do. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I'm told by the university people that have the contacts. I think there's three or four people that really make the decision at the USDA as near as I can tell. Right. And uh, so, you know, there's no, no uh, political nightmares going on. You know, it's just, we're just, we just want to compete. Right. <laughs> I like to compete. You know, in the long pull, uh, we'll build a better future for American agriculture. And, and these young guys are going to be able to pay off land debt. They're going to be able to buy land. And that'll drive land values. And that'll keep these these young guys down on the farm where they can really make a good living and build their families. One of the things that uh, USDA's been doing this fall is, uh, you know, they've invested some big bucks in climate change um, ideas. I would think with the reduction in gas gases into the atmosphere, this, this idea fits in with controlling climate change, right? Yes, it does. And I think um, that you will find that now there's a focus, there's a light in the tunnel about how to keep the greenhouse gases under control. Mm-hmm. And it, there's only one way to do it, and that's the no-till. You've got to be a no-tiller. You've got to use rotational band loading. You've got to cut your usage way down. You're going to be running at about 0.7 of uh, the recommendation. In the case of phosphate, you may run at at 0.2 of the university recommendation. And on sulfur, uh, you're going to need a little more sulfur than what you've been using. And, of course, potassium had this new, you've probably heard me talk about potassium thiosulfate. Sure. And this has really, really got something going. It's at least uh, up to five times more effective than top dress uh, potassium chloride, KCL. Mm-hmm. And and so it's targeted. You know, it's right at that root system, and it's got this nice uh, column of ammonia around it, and it attracts roots, and all of a sudden the crop finds it, and the weeds don't because of the targeting, and uh, you can take it to the next level. 
So it will, will reduce herbicides, keep the gases out of the atmosphere, allow us to keep the soil in place so we're not moving it down the rivers and into the lakes. And we finally have a way to do it. And, you know, you've, you've seen it coming for many years. You've seen it coming on. There's something we have to change, and, and it's, it's the fertilizer industry that it really deserves the comeuppance. There's a lot of promotion and driving forces that, you know, their typical philosophy is more is more. Right. And they just, they can't play in the game. They can't come and join us. Um, it's just unfortunate. It's just human nature, inventory. Yeah. Right. Well, one of the things you mentioned was strip-till and how some strip-tillers will end up doing at least part of their rotation in no-till. But one of the things the strip-tillers have had, I would think, above no-tillers in general, is that they've been sold on the idea of banding rather than broadcasting. So they're they're kind of the head mm-hmm. of the game. A lot of them are ahead of the game there. So maybe if they come over to no-till, they'll be hooked on banding. Well, that's right. And, you know, so many no-till people, uh, farmers, in the high rainfall Midwest scenario, don't really understand how uh, critical it is to band because they get get this high moisture. But if you move west, you have no choice. You have to band it. You cannot lay lay it on top. And so all that $20 million we spent in the 80s in the STEEP program all that education from Washington State, University of Idaho, Oregon State, the nutrients have got to be banded. And yet today, you find scenarios where guys are not paying attention to where the nutrients are at. They've got to be in the ground, in the, in the root zone. There's just more efficiency, just more and more. And the chances of getting it into the environment are greatly, greatly reduced. Why would you, uh, you know, go down and order a, a nice meal at the restaurant and leave 50% of it behind? Why would you do that? Right. It doesn't make any, boy, you've been a restaurant lately, they're pretty expensive. You're going to feed the plant. You need to get it where it can use it. So what have I missed talking to you about? I think we covered it pretty well. Some of the reasons why we are located uh, where we are. That, this has been one of the questions. Why would we do this? What do they call that? The flyover states? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Just so happens they're the states with the most potential. And um, where does that potential come from? And it, it comes from the Ogallala, number one, and conserving moisture, yet you're irrigating. And so when you no-till, you save about four inches of moisture. You get the nutrients banded. You know, you don't need as much. And so you can have deep wells, 400 uh, feet, 600-foot deep wells. They're deeper and deeper all the time because the Ogallal is going away. And so that's part of the business opportunity is irrigated production. And, um, you know, cattle. There's like uh, 12 million head of cattle on feed at any one time, and there's about 7, 8 million right in that stretch of the high plains. And so... I tell my sales guys, uh, wherever you're at, just make sure you're caught between Interstate 40 and Interstate 94. If you can see pivots, that's good. And if you see cows, that's really good. You keep them on the focus. That's where it's at. And, And the other part of the challenge is the elevation. And so as you move into that 1,700 foot elevation level, up to Denver at 5,200 feet, your soils are youngsters. They're not like the uh, great soils of Illinois or Indiana, Iowa. These soils were covered with glaciers until about 20,000 years ago, so they haven't really developed. And so you're always missing some kind of micronutrient. You need manganese or iron. You know, get a lot of iron chlorosis problems in um, in soybeans. But the real potential, as far as green play, is that's where the wind is at. And it's purposely called the Saudi Arabia of wind. And I guess if you spend much time at 4,000 feet, uh, which would be from Amarillo uh, north, you know, that's all some of the best corn production uh, in the, in irrigated is all the way up into Nebraska. We have all these high elevation, what we call 4,000 foot farms or high plains. 
produce these great yields, and it's because they have extra sunshine. There's more sun uh, to raise the corn. They have good water, and they have a lot of wind. And that wind can be harvested back into the crop with ammonia. And that means if your wife has got uh, got a clothesline out and she's drying clothes, you know it's an ammonia day. It's a windy day. And, and so wind is what pushed the pioneers further west. Uh, it was so windy. In general, we just went past it. We went past the real business opportunity. And as the pioneers finally decided in western Kansas and Colorado, this is the place because we've got this great resource. We just need to harvest it, and we'll be using wind and solar to build our ammonia and to run our pumps and to help, you know, with the overall economics of American agriculture in that uh, scenario. I think I've got a good friend, Dr. John Shanahan. He's working with uh, Yara on carbon credits, and we're starting to see pasture land that can be fertilized properly now. Uh, No more top dressing of fertilizer on grasses. It can all be banded. Uh, So you get in those marginal farming areas to get the price down. Well, then the machinery can come in because it's got a fixed cost. It gets stretched over a much longer period of time. It's got a depreciation schedule. It's not like ammonia or nutrients, which are just a straight write-off. And so the price needs to come way down and get back to where it used to be in relation to the price of the commodity. And uh, I think the bankers are going to like it really well because the farmers can pay off land debt. Yeah. So we've been doing the National Notoids Conference for 30, 31, 32 years now. And I remember a speaker we had the very first year in 1993 in Indianapolis. And it was Wes Robbins from Colorado or Kansas. And he, he talked then about the aquifer just going to go dry on us. Well, that hasn't happened. And you were mentioning woods, these guys today are just drilling wells deeper. Are we going to have mm-hmm. enough water in 20, 30 years? Or we, well, no-till will conserve four inches or more. So, Yeah. Well, no-till has been a godsend to them, number one. Because that, that moisture is timely, right? A pivot sure. uh, situation is never timely. And so the more you store, like we pre-water in the Northwest because we have such deep soils that we pull it out of the Columbia and the Snake, we pre-water the crop in in August, September to seed uh, the winter wheat. Mm -hmm. So you don't turn the pivot on again. That's good enough, you know. Well, they don't do that in the Midwest. They don't have that much water uh, to do that sort of thing, and they don't quite have the soil depth. And, you know, management styles are a lot different. But I can tell you that if we get caught and if we keep pumping it, we're going to get caught at some point. There's other alternatives. Uh, And in Texas now, we have irrigated pasture land, you know, where they've lost it. They can't get to it. Or we may actually have to build a great southwestern canal and bring it out of the Missouri up a Lake Sacagua, and bring it on down, bypassing all the Indian reservations that we can, and bring it right down that 4,000-foot level right down um, into Texas. So it can be irrigated. We're not going to lose these families and this wealth that we have in these areas. I know it's pretty disappointing for some guys because they they just don't know. uh, When a well goes to about 200 gallons a minute, you're done. You you yeah. can't do anything. You can't do drip irrigation, drip or subsurface uh, drip irrigation. It, it, that doesn't work it, with a with a well that's so low production. You're not going to risk all that investment into a drip. And so the the real um, part of the story is yet to unfold. But I think it's perennial cropping and uh, alfalfa has been a powerhouse play with the dairies, um, we see some great things with alfalfa. You know, that would be western Kansas uh, for sure, uh, where there's so much alfalfa. It's a case of moving water. (laughs) you got to move it, you know. But that's probably for the next generation to figure that one out. Well, one of the benefits we've seen in the High Plains with no-tillers is they've been they've been willing to diversify their oper- their crop rotation, do something different. Where 
right here in the center of the corn belt it's just soybeans and corn because that's what's paid the bill, paid the bills over the years and they, a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't been willing to diversify cuz they lose income well i think so but i i see things coming frank we will be able to interject a third crop mm-hmm. and even though it's not a an oil seed I, the fumigant, uh, fumigation with crops like Pacific Gold Mustard, as an example, sure. we can fly, fly it on to the soybeans and let that crop winter kill, but it leaves these big tap roots and it fumigates the ground. We've got some real interesting data that we're going to release here in February about how we stabilized the nitrogen and, and held the nitrous ammonis at bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little technique I learned at University of Idaho from Jack Brown and, and Jim Davis about uh, why there is more nitrogen, more ammonium in, in rotations that use crops that have high glucosinolates. So it brings back the comment of green manure. And now we understand what they were talking about. They were, it's not like we have to work it in and try to get it to decompose. It's the fact that the nitrous ammonis can no longer convert near as much ammonium into mobile nitrate. And, uh, and so they get great um, crop responses from using fumigant-grade cropping. So you'll hear more about it. It's probably a little early uh, to be talking about it, but um, you've probably been seeing some of the articles about relay intercrop with yep. fumigant-grade mustard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the data is in now, and boy, it, it'll uh, it'll be interesting for you to read about it. Yeah, you know? this has been fabulous. I think our people have learned a great deal about uh, green ammonia, and I think everybody would would be happy to be paying two hundred and forty seven dollars a ton for green ammonia. So I think you're on to something. Uh, congratulations! Right down the street from your farm, too. Yeah, it's yeah. so close. We don't have to worry about a mega uh, plant and the fear marketing of the fertilizer industry. You got it. You own it. You got it. Anytime the wind's blowing, you're making money. So <laughs> that was the end of today's conversation with green ammonia entrepreneur Guy Swanson. Before we go, I'd like to offer another little-known fact about no-till. Since yields must increase dramatically to meet the growing food demand around the world, we need genetics that can handle higher plant populations and likely new plant redesigns. As an example, no-tillers will need improved genetics to boost corn populations to 60,000 to 70,000 plants per acre. We'll also need drought-tolerant seeds along with lots of fertilizer and careful management to keep nitrogen from leaching into streams. Hopefully, these things are coming in the next few years. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors, Sourced by Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcast. And a transcript of this episode will be available there shortly. If you have any feedback on today's episodes, please feel free to email me at l-e-s-s-i-t-e-f at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-745-3730. I would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and the innovations shaping today's practice. For myself and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Frank Lesseter. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.